Well, good morning. So before we get too far uh, into the message this morning, I want to take a second uh, and tell you about something that we're doing as a church uh, to help us uh, in this Lenten season. And so traditionally, Lent was the time that Christians used uh, the 40 days leading up to Easter to prepare their hearts uh, for, for Good Friday and for Easter. And a lot of times we think about Lent being the time when you give something up. And that can be a very good uh, thing for people, but it can also be a time instead of giving something up It can also be a time when we add something to our lives, add a discipline, add a routine that can help us grow closer to God as we lead up uh, to Easter. And so we've put together a 40-day devotional called the 40 Days of Lent um, that you can pick up on your way out. And we're a couple days into it, but you still got plenty of time um, to get caught up. And I would encourage you, if if you haven't done anything already for Lent, to pick one of these up and add uh, just a daily routine of going through these passages um, as we prepare our hearts uh, for Easter. Okay, so this morning we are starting a new uh, sermon series, um, and you know, it, I'm really excited about this series because it's called Mountains, and the reason I'm so excited about it is like, I, I love mountains. I'm very at home in the mountain state, right? And in fact, I would say that probably the worst 14 hours of my life was the time I had to drive seven hours west through Kansas and then seven hours back east through Kansas because Kansas does not have very many mountains. What it does have uh, is, you know, when I was driving west, it was seven hours of corn, right? And then two months later, when I was driving back east, still flat, the corn was just taller. So it was seven hours of taller corn. That's all I got, right? And so I really think, like, I had some anxiety driving through the state of Kansas. Like, I need some mountains. I miss my mountains. I was so happy uh, to come back home. And so my wife and I, you know, we love, uh, we love mountains. We love being out in, in creation. We love doing things in nature, and we love uh, exploring mountains. <clears throat> and one of the most memorable mountain moments that we have uh, is back in 2007, my wife and I spent the first summer that we were married uh, working at a church camp out in Colorado. And so uh, the last weekend that we were out there, we took on the challenge of climbing Long's Peak. Now, Long's Peak at 14,259 feet uh, is the tallest point in Rocky Mountain National Park, and it's only 250 feet short of being the tallest point in the continental United States. It's a huge mountain, and it's a real challenge to climb. So it's 14 miles round trip to climb this thing. It has 5,000 feet of vertical gain. And you have to get up, you have to actually start hiking this thing at two in the morning, okay? You have to be on the trailhead by two in the morning because the idea is that you have to be on the summit by like eight o'clock in the morning and then back down below tree line before noon because there's these daily thunderstorms that blow in and if you're stuck up on the mountain above tree line when the storms come in, I mean, there's like one or two people that die a year because they get struck by lightning or get blown off a ledge when these storms come in. And you know, that's not even the worst part. The worst part is there's part of the trail they call the Narrows, okay? And they call it the Narrows because it is literally a narrow ledge that is about 1,000 feet long, and it's only two or three feet wide at its, at its most narrow point. Uh, here's a picture of it, and you can actually see, like, that's kind of taken from a distance, and you see where the arrow points, that, that little kind of crest that goes up and down, that's what you have to traverse to get from one end uh, to the other. And so while you're out on this thing, you know, the, there, there's all these rocks you have to climb over, and it's kind of uneven, and, and, and you know, it's funny that there's a lot of people that climb this every day. And so as you're coming back down, there's also people going up. And so you're like coming across people. And, and it's funny, everybody's like trying to be on the side, not the ledge. You're like, oh, no, 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 I'm coming. No, I'm good. You can come on. You're kind of that moment like, okay, who's going to pass on the outside? Because it's, it's really scary. Because 200 feet to your left is just a granite wall that's just straight up. 
And then to your right is literally a 400 foot just straight down drop. I have never been so terrified in my life. I prayed so hard. I'm, I'm not kidding you. I was praying so hard going across this thing. Uh, the whole experience was just equally exhausting and it was terrifying and it was also exhilarating. Because, you know, we learned, I learned a lot about myself that day. I learned a lot about persevering. I learned a lot about overcoming fear and, and what prayer can mean to fight those fears, about what it means to, for prayer to give you strength and courage to push on when you're just like, I don't want to go any further. And I really say for me that it was a milestone moment in my life climbing this thing. Um, because when you're up on the tallest point around, being on top of a tall mountain like that, it literally changes your perspective. You see the world in a different way when you are so high up and you're looking down and everything is below you as far as you can see. It really changes your perspective. And so as we look at a lot of these major milestone moments in the Bible, the interesting thing that we see is so many of them are tied to mountains. So many of the most important, crucial part of the stories of the Bible take place on or around the mountains. And, and it may be because of the, you know, the incredible views or the revelations that you can get on the top. Mountains have become a symbol of being close to God. And you know, we, we describe moments when we feel like our relationship is at its peak with God. We describe those as mountaintop moments because mountains can change your perspective and how you see your relationship with God. And so that's what we're going to be doing over the next seven weeks, is we're going to be looking through these seven really great stories in the Bible that have to do with mountains. Uh, and leading up to Mount Calvary, uh, we're going to talk about on Easter. So I'm really excited for this series, and I'm excited to kick it off uh, this morning. So with that, I'll pray for us. Uh, God, uh, Lord, I just pray this morning, um, as we look at your word, God, that you just speak to each one of us individually, God. I pray that you help us see what you want us to get out of this, God, and just help us uh, know um, what you want to put on our hearts for us to understand uh, this morning. God, we love you so much. We're so thankful for your son. Amen. So this morning, we're going to be looking at um, a story that's it's kind of funny that it's a mountain story because it's not, it's not a story you really associate with mountains a whole lot. Uh, but it's this, is we're going to be looking at a story that you actually associate with water, and that's the story of Noah. And, you know, this, this story fascinates me. I think, it's, I think it's so interesting for this reason. Like, we have this, like, Sunday school obsession with the story of Noah. And I don't know if it's because, like, the cute animals or, you know, like, the songs you learn about the animals coming on the ark two by two, and there's all these cute stories and, and cute animals, and, and, you know, there's this boat, which is kind of cool, and there's a great hero of the story in Noah. And, you know, I remember as a kid in Sunday school, do you all remember the felt boards? Like, anybody else remember the felt boards growing up? Like, the story of Noah, everybody takes a turn walking up, putting the animals on the ark. And it's just so fascinating to me that we, like, make this, like, this story that, like, every kid knows, because if you look at it, it's a sad story. But for some reason, it's a story that we have, like, really devoted uh, spending all this time looking at. And so we know the facts of the story really well, but here is the question, though. The question is, what is the point of the story of Noah. And if you Google like Noah and the things that you see come back, you know, if you, if, if you Google it, you, think, you see questions like, you know, people like to speculate about how it was built or how could the animals have all fit or why did the animals eat each other? Or, um, you know, things like, have we found it? And there's a question like, what about the dinosaurs? You know, and there's all these like questions that we look at. And the question I always wonder is like, Noah, 
could you have left behind the mosquitoes? Really? Like, do we really need to save the mosquitoes? They could have drowned, right? Things like that are what we look at when it comes to the story of Noah. But again, these are all fun questions to look at and interesting questions to look at, but it doesn't answer the question of what is the point of Noah. So we're going to jump right in. We're going to start with Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. It says, The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. It's like, wow, do you feel the weight of that passage? I regretted making humans? That's, that's tough. And so when we, read this, when we read passages like that, we have to remember the omni characteristics of God. Like one of them is God is omnipresent, which means that in the context of time, God has no beginning, end, or succession of moments in his own being, but yet he sees all time equally vividly and sees events in time and acts in time. Okay, so that's God's omnipresent quality. We also know that God is omniscient which means he is all-knowing. So you put those things together, God sees all time equally, and God knows everything. So we put those two things together, we know that God from the beginning, God knew that this was going to happen. God knew that this was going to be the result of this. God knew that the sin would come in into the world. And so we look at that, and we're like, well, what does that mean? Like, when it says he regrets making humans, is it like, like oh, oops, I didn't go like I thought. Like, I didn't see that coming. Like, that's not what it means at all. And what it means here is when we look at at the word regret, it's meant to convey the human emotion, like when we feel regret. When we feel regret, we feel hollow. We feel sick inside, like, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that. And the idea here is that sin moves God's heart. Sin breaks God's heart. And if you look, listen to the scope of the sin here, it says that every inclination of the thoughts of human heart was only evil all the time. And so the problem that we see in the story of Noah is sin. So verse 11 goes on. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. And notice here it says the earth was corrupt because of humans, so therefore God had to destroy both people and creation on the account of how bad people had messed everything up. And so one thing that's kind of cool when you look at this passage is, you know, when we translate from, from Hebrew to English, we lose a lot of the beauty and the poetry uh, in the language. And the, the neat thing here is if you look at the words corrupt in verse 11 and 12, it's the same Hebrew word that, that uh, is destroy in 13. So what God is literally saying here is I'm going to destroy the destroyers. We have destroyed creation, so therefore I'm going to destroy them. Humans had completely corrupted themselves and were taking all of creation down with them. So the problem is sin, but the consequence of sin is death. But not for Noah. Verse 14. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. 
Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all of life under the heavens, every creature that has breath in it. Everything on earth will perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of every living creature, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, and every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you and be kept alive. You are to take kind, every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and them. And so Noah gets a rescue. Noah is saved by the ark. So the problem was sin, the consequence was death, but the solution for Noah was the ark. And while the ark, the ark had to be built, like it came from God, but Noah still had to build it. God provided the vessel for his deliverance, but that ark would have had no value if Noah didn't build it and board the ark. So verse 22 says that Noah did everything just as God commanded him. And so Noah had to put his trust in God's promise of the solution. Noah had to trust God. And so we know the rest of the story. Noah's obedient. Noah builds the ark. The animals come to him. Two by two, they board the ark. God shuts the door to the ark. And then what happens? Nothing, right? It says that for seven days, they sat there. For seven days, they boarded the ark. The ark was shut up. In seven days, nothing happened. And I can't imagine like the anxiety that Noah and his family would have been facing, like, did we do the right thing here? Like, we're in this ark. It's been day one, day two, day three. Like, when is this going to happen? When's the flood going to happen? When is this going to happen? Did we, did we make the wrong decision? But then after day seven, it starts to happen. The floodwaters come. The water covers the ground. The water lifts the ark. The rains come. The waters go up. The rains come. The waters go up. This goes on and on and on. It keeps raining. The water keeps rising until chapter 7, verse 21 says, Every living thing that moved on lands perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth, and all of mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. Like, what's your reaction to that? It's sad. It's heartbreaking. It's a terrible story. Everything is going, everything. But then we have hope. And so I'm going to show you something that's really cool in this passage. And I love discovering uh, these types of things in Scripture. And it's, 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 kind of, it's kind of thick. It's kind of hard to understand. But it's really important to see the meaning uh, in these passages. And so I'm going to explain something to you. Bear with me. I will get to a point. Okay? I promise. There is a literary form in ancient liter literature called a parallel chiasm. Uh, and they are used throughout the Bible. But the story of Noah is a classic example of how this works. And, and how these work is that the writer starts with a, a foundational stone. And then on top of that puts another level, and another level, and another level. And each time they add a level, they're pulling from something that comes from below. 
And so they keep building, and they keep adding, and they keep building, and they keep adding. But the way this works is that at the top, what it does is it kind of makes this arch, okay? Because the parallelism comes from as you go up this side, when you go back down the other side, there's a parallel verse that perfectly fits with going up. So it really makes this perfectly parallel arcing story, okay? Follow me? And so I know you can't see this, and I actually have, because I, I wouldn't have time to like, go through this whole thing, but it's really cool, and if you're into that kind of thing, like I actually printed this off, and so if, you, if you're interested in this, come see me afterwards, take this and go through it. It's fascinating. And the thing that's interesting about it is that you know, people that, if, if, you, if you take the book, The Story of Noah, and you start in Genesis 6, and if you just read straight through, like the story is really choppy, it's repetitive, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, it seems like it's bouncing all over the place, you keep saying the same things over and over and over, and people criticize and say, that story is terribly written because of that. And it's the exact opposite. The story is actually like masterfully crafted, and when you take the time to go through it and see it, it blows your mind how really perfect this story comes together, okay? I tell you all that to make this one point, okay? With these stories, the way this works, is the top point in the arc, is the most important part of the story. It's the whole focus of the story. Everything centers around that centerpiece at the top. And is Noah's story, do you know what is the centerpiece of this story? Was the, high, was the center point, was the high point the sin of the earth? Was it the judgment, was it the destruction, was it the rain or the floods or any of those things? No, the center point in this story comes in verse 8-1. It says this, but God remembered Noah. And that's weird, right? Because you're like, what do you mean he remembered him? Do you forget he was out there? Like, you know, God's like, no, flood's done. I can rest now. Oh, I forgot Noah. I forgot about Noah. No, that's not what it means at all. We see this passage a lot in scripture when it says, God remember me. God remembered Noah. God remembered Rachel. Uh, and, and throughout Psalms, David is praying, remember me, O Lord. And when we see this phrase in the Bible, it's the idea of listening and acting on someone's behalf. Listening and acting on someone's behalf. God, remember me. God, act on my behalf. And so two things happen here when God acts on Noah's behalf. When God intervenes for Noah. Verse 3 says, the water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of the 150 days, the water had gone down. On the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And see, the mountains of Ararat is where the storm ended for Noah. God had used the ark to save Noah and his family from the judgment that was caused by sin. As a result of God intervening on Noah's behalf, Noah was rescued. And this other really cool thing happens on the mountain of Ararat. Not only is Noah rescued, but it's like, you know, if you work in an environment where you have computers and your computer's not working and you call your IT department, what's the thing they always tell you? Like, reboot, restart your computer, right? That's the fix, restart it. And so what we see on Mount Ararat is a reboot, a restart, a rebirth. Because the world was broken, the system was broken, and the cure to all this was a fresh start. So in chapter 8, verse 15, it says, Then God said to Noah, Come out of the ark, you and your wife, your sons and their wives. Bring every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, and all the creatures that move along the ground, so they can multiply on earth and be fruitful and increase in number on it. 
So Mount Ararat is where we get a new covenant. The new covenant says in verse 21, Never again will I curse the ground because of humans, even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. And so with that instruction, go forth and multiply. And with that covenant, we have the second result. And that is the rebirth, reboot, restart. And so all this was like a pretty good deep dive into the story of Noah. And I said at the beginning, we're going to talk about what's the point of, of Noah? What's the point? All these things are great. Still not the point of Noah. Okay? Here's the point. I've heard... Uh, Theologian and pastor Tim Keller say this repeatedly, and I love it. He says, if you read a passage in the Bible and you don't see every story, every law, every rule, every text as pointing beyond itself and to Jesus Christ, then you're lost. If you read a passage in the Bible and you don't see Jesus in the text, you're not looking at it the right way. And so what we see here in the story of Noah is that this is so true. What is the point of the story of Noah? Noah is the perfect foreshadowing of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Because check this out. What's the problem today? Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The problem, is, the problem of sin is present today just as it was with Noah. So what's the consequence? Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death. Sin has consequences. Sin has consequences, has natural consequences in this life. Like there's natural consequences for our bad actions and our bad decisions. Sin has spiritual consequences in that it keeps us from being the person that God wants us to be. And sin has eternal consequences because it separates us from God. We know, and, and man, see this, what's the, what's the vessel of our rescue? First Peter 2.24 says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Noah had the ark, but we have the cross. And so what's the result then? Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Even in our sin, even in our rebellion, Jesus died for us so that he could rescue us from judgment. What else is the result? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. You see, everything lines up perfectly. There's one thing I skipped on purpose, and it's this. It's the very important question. What's the action that's required? Like, what did Noah have to do? He had to board the ark. God told him to build it, and he did. What if Noah hadn't heeded God's warning? What if Noah had thought, that's not really going to happen. God's not really going to judge the earth. What if Noah had thought, God, I have a better way to do this. I have an idea. I'm going to save myself. I'm going to save my family. I have a better way to do this. What if Noah hadn't listened to God? What if Noah had said, God, that's not fair. That's not fair you're going to destroy the earth. I don't want to be a part of this. That's not fair. I don't want to have anything to do with that. What if Noah would have said these things? Noah would have drowned. If Noah hadn't gotten on the boat, Noah would have drowned. So Noah had to trust God to obtain his rescue. And we do too. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. And so 
I hate to be this blunt, but it would, I would be doing you a major disservice if I didn't just spend the past 25 minutes going through this story. It would be a disservice to you if I did not ask you this question. And that is, are you on the boat this morning? Are you on the boat? See, judgment will come. It won't be a flood, but all of us will face judgment. And whether or not you are on the boat will have enormous consequences. It have enormous consequences. I want to take a second and talk about when John 3 says, believe in Christ. I want to talk for a little bit about what it means to believe in Christ. Does it mean believe that Jesus existed, like Jesus was a real person? Does it mean to believe that? Does it mean to believe that Jesus was a wise man or a great teacher, and if, if I listen to what he says, my life will be better? Is that what it means to believe in Christ? Does it mean that you believe that he was a prophet from God? Does it mean to believe those things? No, it means more than that. When the Bible talks about believing in Jesus, what the Bible means is to trust God for your rescue, fully trusting that God sees you as righteous, not because of what you have done, not because of anything that you can do or cannot do, none of those things, but what matters is what Christ did for you on the cross. Noah trusted the ark. We have to trust the cross. And so this morning, we're going to end um, by taking some time for communion. And at River Ridge, you don't have to be a member to take communion. Nobody's going to tell you uh, when to take it. It's on your time. We're going to give you some time to kind of process these things on your own time. Um, the, the bread represents the body of Christ that was broken for you. The juice represents the blood of Christ that was shed for you. And if you're already a believer in Christ, I would encourage you to take this time to think about the weight of your sin. Think about the things uh, that you have done that keeps you from God. And then reflect on what it means that Jesus intervened on your behalf, that God intervened on your behalf. God remembered you. Because when we think about those things, that's when communion can have so much uh, more meaningful. It can be so much more meaningful when we think about these things. And I'll say this morning, if you're not a believer in Christ, you know, Mount Ararat represents the awesome time when God intervened on Noah's behalf, when God remembered Noah. And this morning can be your mountaintop moment. This morning can be the time, the milestone moment in your life when you say yes to trusting God and getting on the boat, trusting God for your salvation, trusting God to be rescued, trusting God for that rebirth. This morning can be your Mount Ararat moment. I'm going to close in prayer. And, you know, a lot of times when we talk about uh, these things, we, there's a prayer that we like to say and, you know, pray this prayer with me type thing. And I want to be clear, like, there's no magic formula to this prayer. It's not like the prayer is what saves you. What matters is what is in your heart. And so I'm going to pray this prayer. I want to pray this prayer because I believe it. Everything that I'm getting ready to pray, I wholeheartedly believe with my whole heart. And if you believe it with me, I would encourage you to pray it with me too. But maybe this morning, maybe the first time that you've thought about what these things mean, and maybe this morning is the first time when you say, yes, I want to trust God for my salvation. I want to believe these things too. So I would encourage you, pray with me. God, I know that I'm a sinner. 
I know that I constantly miss the mark in who you want me to be, God. And I know that my sin would have enormous consequences. It would have enormous consequences, God, if that were all I were left with. If I were just left with trying to be good enough, God, I know that I would miss the mark and that would not be good enough, God. But I know this morning, Lord, that you had a different plan, God, that you intervened on my behalf, God, when you sent Jesus to the cross to die so that he could take those sins, take those shortcomings, God, and that I could trust in him for my salvation. I could trust in him to be rescued from this judgment that is coming. I can trust in him to be rebirthed and to be made a new creation, God. I trust those things this morning, Lord. I put my whole heart, my whole faith in you. God, I'm so thankful for what you did for me, Lord. And I just want to take my whole life and give it to you because of that. It's all these things in your son's name. Amen.